So, welcome back to the Digital Wake podcast. Danny, would you like to introduce yourself first? Sure. So, I am Danny Watmo. I'm Managing Director at Red Consultancy. My background is varied. I started very much in digital and then sort of got into the world of social a little bit. And then for the last, I don't know, 10 or so years, I've kind of always done that within a PR agency setting. So I guess I've kind of come into PR through digital. And yeah, that's pretty much what I do every day now, mainly for consumer brands these days. But over the years, I've done B2B, all of that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, and I'm Max Hatton-Brown, and my background is going from small PR agencies, always working on unsexy tech, as we call it. You can't see, but I'm doing quote marks. Very important you have the quote marks. Scale-ups, really, scale-up tech companies. And I suppose seven years ago, I left to, well, I joined a a global tech startup, semi-accidentally. That was a hell of an experience. And then I started my own uh, communications agency. And the idea being, because why start an agency frankly like unless you've got a really good reason the idea being that we exist to reconsider and re-engineer the ways of doing pr and communications for these kinds of startups fast growing young scale-ups in unsexy finger quotes tech tech companies so so that's me and this project is something we did five years ago we did about three or four episodes so successful lots of listeners lots of fans thanks lots, lots of letters in the meantime obviously asking when we're back Uh, We thought we'd revisit it as we come into 2020, talk a little bit about everything as we see it from from the big trends that are around communications, zooming in then to the business level and the uh, business model even, frankly. What should these companies look like? How do they make money? And then finally, a bit about the individual level. Joining us on this journey is a delicious uh, 2015 Viognier that we picked (laughs) up uh, to, to celebrate the history of this illustrious podcast. And, and of course, yourselves. So that means as we go through, quality of content is probably going to diminish. Increase, yes, yeah. exactly. Now, first of all, let's talk about how the world has changed around communications. What comes to mind for you when you think over the last five years? So since the coalition government, how has the environment around communications and things changed to you? So I guess if we were thinking back in 2015, we were probably talking about you know, trends in the media environment, you know, newspapers, but, you know, media, media continuing to struggle, you know, newspapers going out of business, Mm. all of that kind of stuff was Mm. probably very, I think was very current and and things we were sort of probably thinking quite a lot about. To an extent, some of that stuff is, some of that stuff is continued, but actually there has been some good consolidation in the media. I think one of the big, maybe positives to come out of Trump and and the rest of it is that actually the media have demonstrated their value I think in a way that they maybe weren't before you could argue that both ways there's been a need there's been a need so you see you see you know New York Times subscriptions you know Wall Street Journal subscriptions Guardian make starting to actually make some money and a lot of that has been driven by complexities in the broader world that actually means that we do need third-party journalists and media to help us navigate through some of that stuff. The the demand has changed, hasn't it? Yeah. People want to know what is going on. And once they're... I mean, it's always been the way, when you relate that then to brands, that when people are paying close attention somewhere, that's where the brands then want to be visible and be present. And if people are paying more attention and closer attention, more real-time attention everywhere... Then potentially they're actually seeing the messages and things that, that people are trying to 
place there, you know? Yeah. So I guess on the on the positive side, that's been an interesting shift. But then I guess the, the negative aspect of that has been fake news, filter bubbles, mm. you know, regulation or not of social platforms, you know, the extent to which they should be used as a political propaganda machine, all of that kind of stuff that we've sort of started to see over the last couple of years. Well, social has changed, hasn't it? If we're talking yeah. about social media in 2015, which I'm sure would seem just wildly so innocent by contrast, talking about it back then, even though there were some signs, there were some clues, I think we were talking about questions of like, oh, you know, organic reach has gone down, you've got to now pay to like yeah. be in people's feeds. Yeah. Whereas in, in the broader context, you know, outside of communications, really it's even, is social media a good thing or a bad thing? Like it's at the moral level. And that has, that has real ramifications for, for them when you go, if you're trying to reach people somewhere, when you look at professionally what we're trying to do and what the industry is about, then if the place you're trying to do it is somewhere that people are increasingly thinking, I don't like this place, it's dirty, it makes me feel bad. <laughs> like, what does that mean for the brands as well, you know? And then what's the alternative? If, if you look at the reputational challenges that Facebook has faced over the last couple of years, for example, mm. and yeah, they've had some share price sort of fluctuations, but actually, if you look at their core metrics... They've actually achieved. It, it hasn't shifted anything. Mm. And, and, you know, people aren't deserting these platforms. Again, Twitter you could argue now is probably more relevant than it ever has been because of Trump, Brexit, referendums. So political, isn't it? All of that kind of stuff. And, and so I think it's it's a really interesting one. And, and there's been a lot of ink spilt around, is social a good thing? Is it is it something that's kind of a positive? You know, we talked about the mental health bit a little bit already. Having said that, people aren't voting with their... People don't do what's good for them always, do they, right? Click. So one thing that I think has become apparent though is the degree to which people engage and produce and are willing to interact and are willing to post whether it's about political things or it's you know complaining to well, you, you think people do that much more bigger. i think it's huge now okay people are so so casual about it in the way i think the nearest comparison to me is maybe comment sections on newspapers or yeah. on big websites no one ever read those things, but people were very happy to go do, 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 and feel heard. Yeah. And that's true politically. It's true in terms of their complaints. And you just said a similar thing in 2015, but having just gone through the election we've gone through, yeah. seeing all of the pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit people on either side, it feels almost universal. It's interesting. I'm going through some of the things that happened in 2015. This is quite interesting to kind of see actually how some things... Yeah. Have, have shifted quite a bit. So like Periscope and Meerkat obviously have totally disappeared. Because at this time of year, we get so obsessed, don't we, about, you know, what were the big things that happened in yeah. 2019? And what do we think of the big things that happened this year? And and actually, in 12 months, it's actually not a very long time when you look at those slightly bigger macro trends. Yep. And even over five years, yes, there are some little blips like Periscope and Meerkat. But to be honest, if we were really truthful, hand on heart, mm. back in 2015... If you were really going to put your, you know, bet your mortgage on it, yeah. you probably weren't going to say that those things were necessarily going to be massive. The next big thing. But then the, their legacy has been inherited by the likes of TikTok, right? And Instagram video. It was that argument that happens with technology sometimes where is it a feature or is it a product? Yeah. You know, and sometimes yeah. it's a feature of another service. And you know, there was a, a great piece about TikTok in the last week or so that was talking about how it represents something that it termed infinite media. So 
And the example in it was of, uh, I think, a college age student who would literally scroll through TikTok until their phone battery ran out. And they couldn't get away from it. They hadn't reached the point where they would plug the phone in to, to make it literally last forever. But I'd say since 2015, the degree to which these platforms have been able to push people's buttons and keep them paying attention is huge. Whether it's the first five seconds of YouTube adverts to yeah. make you not click that button, or it's, uh, of which I think there was one really good example in the US, an insurance company, where it would just do something really weird in the first five seconds and you'd actually end up watching and it, oh yeah I remember there that there was like a dog on a table yeah. and then you started eating all the food and yeah. the people in the and you wanted to know what would actually happen next so some of this is marketing you know if you simply entertain your audience you will get their attention but but yeah you know TikTok picked up Vine and Periscope's start yeah. I suppose there's something that it didn't pick up which was the live side of it you yeah know, where do people communicate live now where and how but that's probably become so but then again, I think with live, and I'm, I guess I'm now thinking slightly more from a professional point of view, but yep. my point on live is always, it's actually, it's actually quite rare for you to have something that really justifies live, it's as in live right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, and actually, you know, there were, you know, again, probably a couple of years ago, you had lots of brands and businesses wanting to think about how we could do live content and actually most of the time you would turn around to them and say unless there's a really 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 good reason yeah live content is bloody difficult stressful to do hard. yeah can go easy wrong very to... easy <laughs> God, yeah and and i think you know that's the it's the hype curve with some of this stuff people get very excited about these new things that come out yeah tiktok is probably a good example of that at the moment and, you know, actually sometimes you need to pour some cold water on these things and remember that actually it might be the same fate as a Periscope. I'm not saying TikTok necessarily will be that. Sure, sure. But it's it needs to be thought. It should be considered. Yeah, yeah you shouldn't. And, and of course that's true, especially because so much of the time and with how quickly this is moving, you could be still trying to really get the hang of how you're using the previous channel before you really want to go and try and get the hang of the next one, right? Because... Ideally, between all your channels, between your entire strategy, like across what you're doing generally, you should be learning larger lessons yep. that feed the next one anyway, right? Yep. Of like, yeah, it's something that's stuck in my mind for a long time of as someone who was, uh, got into PR and communications at a time when everything was changing so much, I was thrilled by Google Wave, <laughs> uh, Google Buzz, <laughs> and many non-Google products, but, uh, Periscope, you know, all these things. Always so excited, always trying them out, always about the, the newest thing. I was that little precocious account exec and senior account you exec, as you can confirm. And then over time, you realize that actually the platforms change and morph and come and go and mature and are new, and that keeps going. But underneath it, there are things that don't change about how people behave and how people react and how marketing works and all that stuff, right? And that's, I think that is, it is fundamental, isn't it? It's, it's at the end of the day, a lot of the things we're talking about are tools. Yep. They're ways of communicating and and we, rightly so in many instances, we get very obsessed by those because they're they're things that change and they update and they shift and, and you know, think new things get announced and all of that kind of stuff. But actually fundamentally we're still people communicating or businesses communicating and actually it it's rare that something happens in such a big way that it, it forces us to have massive changes to the way we behave. Because I think sometimes those things do take a lot longer hmm. to shift. 
not always true. And every now and again, we will get something that will be slightly more... I mean, mobile, smartphones. Yeah. But even there, it's a, a relatively gradual shift. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, you know, the Apple Watch, five years old already. And, you mm. know, it hasn't revolutionized. Well, arguably, AirPods seem to be a bigger deal, like a bigger market. They make a, more money than various other things these tweets were saying today. Um yeah, yeah, you're right, but uh, you can see the appeal because when something new comes out, in some ways it's easy to be suddenly 80% good at a new thing, which no one else is paying attention to, mm-hmm. than it is to be, you know, even like 50% good at something that's existed for 10 years. Yeah. Really hard game. But then, to be fair, it's all of our jobs to try and do the hard things, not the easy things. Yeah. Another thing I think you realize as your, as your career kind of progresses. As you get older. As we all age, inevitably. So in summary, looking at the overall context that surrounded what we do for the last five years, we're going to talk about a a theme each that we think has been big. So on my side, because we work with scale-ups, Series A, B level tech companies, found their product market fit, about to do the next big thing. That world since 2015 is, I suppose, both unrecognizable, but also in some ways it has not been realized in the way that the promises exist in 2015 in some ways. So if you talk about Uber, WeWork, huge embarrassing disasters, SoftBank-backed disasters from the enormous funds that SoftBank have, so just huge amounts of money essentially trying to take over a whole market by not making money, and then the idea is you own it, and then you're just rich forever. They haven't exactly succeeded. WeWorks was a disaster, the, the flows of WeWork. Uber is still facing enormous kind of ethical resistance across at least governments, if not the public, because frankly, I'll spend VC money to get my taxi ride cheaper if you want me to. So they haven't exactly shown a, a new reality where we all go, oh yeah, this isn't a bubble. It's not a dot-com boom again. Like this is safe as houses. These are genuinely the most valuable companies in the world. For the most part. And yet, but at the same time, I mean, you cannot deny the startup world, the tech world is so much bigger than it was five years ago. And if you look at it in London, the ecosystem created by the successful exit, well, not millions of exits, but by the successful operators, by Google and Facebook and companies like that being based here. And then product managers leaving those companies, starting new startups, you know, the health of that startup scale-up world is in a fantastic place. And if that's where new companies come from, that means that the client base for all of us should be in a really healthy position, at least for the ones that do stick around and don't implode or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So for me, the last five years, the key on what I do and what I've spent my time on, I think that's been a, a double-sided, really interesting trend to me. What about you, Danny? Well, I think, um, so again, I was just you know looking at some of the other things that, that we were sort of potentially, I mean, God, I can't remember what we were talking about in 2015, but... Maybe we sure. might have been talking about the Volkswagen emissions scandal, which yep. hit, I think, in September. And I don't know, it's really interesting because I think at the, at the time that felt like quite a big thing. And I'm sure yeah. all the PR roundups at the end of 2015 were probably talking yep. about, you know, the VW fail and reputational disaster and all of that kind of stuff. And and actually, fast forward five years and... And really, the reputational damage hasn't been quite as significant since then. And in fact, I subsequently, during that time, have worked for another automotive manufacturer who had a bit of a crisis situation. And I think it's really interesting when you are in those 
when you're in the heat of the moment, yeah. it's easy to to sort of feel as though this is something that's you know pretty seismic. But actually, VW have come out of that pretty well, and maybe it's partly because you could argue emissions, you know, being slightly wrong. I mean, it, it does how much does the general consumer on the streets care about some of that stuff mm-hmm. versus something like Boeing, if we think about mm-hmm. a current example mm-hmm. where, you know, you've got planes falling out of the sky, deaths and planes falling out of the sky and all of those sorts of awful things. I don't know. It's really interesting. It's really interesting to think over a five-year period, stuff that feels very, very big and very, very recent five years ago. Actually, if you look at the health of, health of a brand over a particular, you know, period of time, mm-hmm. Brands like VW that have amazing affinity in their brand, you know, they're a very, very well-loved brand, um, actually can can weather some of those storms pretty well. Mm. And I, I do think that is it's really fascinating to see the the brands that suffer when things like that happen and the yeah. ones that, that don't. I guess it comes back to the Facebook example that we were giving earlier. Yeah. So the moral of the story is nothing really matters. Exactly. <laughs> but it, you're, all, you're only five years away from everything being all right again. But it's interesting that a uh, premeditated, deceitful, strategic lie matters less yeah. than an error on Boeing's part, you know, which I think was with the autopilot and stuff, right? Like lying, it's not that important. People actually are strangely forgiving of, of lies where it doesn't seem like incompetence, I suppose. VW buyer on the street, do they really care about that? They just want to buy a nice car and get on with their life like we all do. Yeah. And <clears throat> you have a small core of people who probably really care about it and are probably yeah. very vocal about it. Yeah. But actually... And what's funny at the same time is, you know, in a conversation like this, and, and for the types of people we're trying to talk to through this, you know, the people who are going to do that kind of thing, who are going to lie about missions tests or whatever, or frankly, maybe the comms people didn't even know, they're going to do that anyway. People who are going to act unethically are going to do that anyway still. And the people who aren't are going to not do it. Regardless, you don't accidentally start lying about it. I don't think you slip into something mm. that massive for that scale of company. That comes from the top and the culture. Yep. And so in some ways, as with so many of these things, now, it's hard to really learn much from so much of what happens, despite the amount of hot takes that you get and podcasts that you listen to, hoping <laughs> <laughs> to shed light. But look, that wraps up us talking about the, the broader trends and context. Next, we'll look at the agency level, the business level itself, and what's going on there. Maybe a bit on in-house as well, if we if we touch on that. So... At this point, we're going to start talking uh, one level down in scale, which is about the business level, about agencies and about uh, running these businesses because they are obviously businesses. But I suppose to start from my side, actually, frankly, one thing I've really noticed through my career is how often the people who are running these companies have kind of no business training. You end up running an agency. It's very rare you set out to run an agency in some ways. I would say even as someone who started their own one, like that's still true. I ended up doing it. No one told me how to run, you get taught how to run accounts, you get taught how to manage clients, you get taught about servicing, over-servicing and those kinds of things. But the true entrepreneurial idea of this is profit, this is margins, how you make money, you know, is abstracted. So I'm, I've been at Red two and a half months. Yes. Um, before that, I was at Weber five years. So, you know, yeah. 2015, I was probably just had just started at Weber. And I think the the Weber 
experience over those five years has been really interesting. So I, I, I definitely joined at a time when the big networked agencies like that were, there was a big sort of almost a gold rush to try and bring in new disciplines. So, you know, Weber, I saw the, the data, there was like one data analyst when I joined. By the time I left, it was like 16, 17 people in London. Mm. So, you know, big shift, creative, strategy, planning, that kind of stuff that, you know, we acquired a social agency, we acquired a digital development agency while I was there. So lots of shifts in terms of different stuff coming into the business. And one of the things that links back, long-winded way of linking back to the point you just made, one of the really interesting things about bringing all those different disciplines in is you you suddenly realize that the traditional agency model was kind of broken if you wanted to give those people a really satisfactory career. Because you're right, the traditional PR agency model was you work your way through the ranks, you do your, you know, you do your media sellings, you then become an account manager, you then start to kind of manage clients a little bit more, then you become an AD or a director or whatever. And then eventually, you know, 15 years down the line, somebody says, oh, you can run this agency now. And at that point, you're kind of like, okay, I've been used to running clients, but I'm not necessarily, you know, now I'm kind of running a business. And that's actually a very different, Mm. potentially different skill set that not everyone has. And I think it's, in bringing new disciplines into a business, you suddenly realize how totally warped that model is. Because actually, if I'm a data analyst working at Weber Shamwick or Edelman or all these other big agencies that are starting to recruit these types of people, actually, my my eventual career goal probably isn't to run a PR agency. So you need to give people a different career path through a business that doesn't necessarily end up with them running the whole thing or running a client or, you know, the traditional symbols of career success Success, that we've had in the past. And I think that's true when you look at the more traditional PR disciplines. So if you're somebody that's just very, very passionate about media relations, Mm. why shouldn't you be able to get to a very senior role with, you know, good salary and good career prospects within that discipline and within that field rather than thinking at some point you've got to park all that stuff that you you're really passionate about and you're really good at and become a md or become a ceo yeah and i think that's some of the shift that certainly over the last you know i think these these things have been talked about obviously for a long time but i think in the last five years i think in the industry there has been that kind of a shift as we've started to realize that it's hard for the generalist model to survive in a in a world where actually there are lots more disciplines that, that come into what we do. How do you have? How does that reflect in in the kind of? Yeah, well, I've come from the other side. Yeah, you've been on the, the large agency side. I've been on the blank sheet of paper. You know, I got into PR, didn't know what a press release was. Yeah, the whole experience of PR, frankly, has been a blank sheet of paper and following your instinct of. I think this is interesting. I think this is a thing. I think what we should do day to day should be more this shape through at the same time, the lens of having worked in fast growing tech startups for and with fast growing tech startups, headacoms of VCs, you know, in, in a different mentality environment. In the startup world, <laughs> probably my first, first week, first sort of early time coming to the office, 
a big thing was happening. I realized as I was saying this, I should probably not in completely detail what was going on. A big thing was happening that really made, focuses the mind. It really makes you think like, oh, this is not the type of environment you have at agencies where there's going to be like someone in the corner spending all afternoon, maybe days on a PDF report for the client that no one's going to read. Yeah. It is an environment of urgency and of actually life or death of the business. Mm -hmm. And when you apply that to the things I'd been doing in, in agencies and in communication, yes, there's often a sense of urgency, but that's partly because you're, you're supposed to be doing a load of stuff that no one cares about. Like mm. no one needs. No one really, frankly, even wants mm. if they knew what they wanted. But you've been yeah. shaped a certain way. Yeah. So I suppose it was 2015 must have been, I was a year or so into doing my own thing. Or maybe I'd even announced my agency in February. And the, the explicit purpose was, was really to start again. Mm. Do things like not use email with clients. It's more forgiving on their inbox and also it allows you to move to a project management system, you know? So you've talked about bringing in the other disciplines in terms of social, in terms of digital, uh, you know, in terms of, I think, content and things around there as well, right? But I think the biggest thing in the last five years that I have seen just tremendous value from is the systems, a different kind of company on the inside day-to-day, -day, regardless of the disciplines. Because once we also took that perspective of focus on that front, we could apply that to our product and our proposition as well. So over those years, yeah, again, I, I suppose I've developed Augur Edits, which is a way to produce uh, content and editorial without us directly having to make it, but us adding as much value as possible in the process of making it. There's a thing called Augur Wire, all just grim product code names, which obviously we've spoken about before, but but which is, is designed entirely to remove media relations from our day-to-day -day process. We can still offer it as part of what we really do, which is ongoing strategic programs, which is what I think this industry should do. It's funny when you talk to PR people, like they are a bunch of cynics. There are very few PR people who are walking into that room going like, I think this brand is genuinely amazing and everything they do is legitimately the most interesting thing in the world. Like it breeds a real, you know, reality when you have to talk with journalists. Yeah, but I, and I think that's, I on. think that's so important. And, and it you know, is important, yeah. and I remember, you know, my early years as an AE, I can very, very clearly remember my first sell-in, which was all around call center, call phrase. center technology. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember, that. you know, having the, you know, picking up the phone and the journalist slamming it down and, you know, and you very quickly realize what is a good story, what's not a good story. And and I think in some ways, I in some ways I agree with you, in some ways I disagree with you. I think I think in some ways the game has changed and what we're being asked to do by clients or sometimes what we're telling clients they should do has changed and it's not always earned. But I still do think there is incredible value in having that earned mindset. And, and that is a, a, a discipline and a training that I think is, is more relevant today than it ever has been, mm. you know, at a time when we're punting more and more content out into the world. Mm. I think there is a, the, we do our, we do ourselves a, a real service if we make sure that we are always being as truthful as possible and, and saying to ourselves or to our clients or to the people we work with if we're, if we're in-house that the content we're putting out is genuinely interesting and engaging to use it.
word that's been corrupted, you know, and, yeah. and, and making sure that actually it's as good as it possibly can be. The interesting, for me, the interesting bit about our profession is the, the delight in crafting something truthful that's effective. Anyone can lie. You make up lies. Like, lying is, is, should be wildly unsatisfying. And I think intellectually is wildly unsatisfying to most people unless you have a slight kind of sociopathic tinge, which is not unheard of in our industry. But the, the joy of the craft of taking the truth especially if you can spot something in that truth that's more valuable than it's being used for at that moment. And just getting that out there, like amplifying that, is where it feels kind of worthwhile. And it feels like your experience pays off for all those years of doing mm. this. And it is a skill that is intransferable to so many other things. Yep. You start this conversation talking about the business models and running these yep. things as a business. And frankly, there is something inherent in the, the persuasive skills that you have to learn, in understanding how to attract and relate to your audience, to your listener, that at least should give you the first, first kind of best hope at starting the business. The thing I suppose that we're talking about that's lacking is potentially underneath that, where it's the attitude of saying, you should charge as much as you can for this on a value model. Stop allowing yourself to be commoditized. Mm -hmm. The longer you run your business, the more you understand what your business really is for your particular perfect customer. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can charge more. Mm -hmm. That's where you can advise with absolute confidence. You can turn down work. And yeah. it's like a, you know, obviously panacea here. Like, you know, this is yeah. a holy grail description. But in my experience, that has been the, the route to truth and follow mm -hmm. that instinct. So, yeah, I think that's, I think it's really interesting. And I think the client agency relationship thing is one that I do think... I've seen a slight shift in terms of how businesses are using agencies and and where they see value from agencies and actually being really honest around that. So a nice example, I think, in the social sphere is agencies being used for things like community management, where actually, you know, an agency solution for community management is always going to be expensive, suboptimal, clunky, probably not the best, you know, you, you can have really good people doing it, but it's not the same as having somebody that's actually embedded in your business, you know, totally in sync with your contact center operations or whatever it might be, you know. And, and I think I've definitely seen a shift over the last couple of years as things like social have matured, where you can actually have a really, you know, you can have a good conversation with a client and say, you know what, hand on heart, the best way for you to deliver really good community management is for you to have this in-house. And yes, of course, we'll do it for you if you need us to. And mm. sometimes headcount can be an issue and all of those sorts of things. But realistically, that is the best place for you to do that. Much better for you to use us as an agency to be you know, those consultants that can come in and offer you the things that you can't do in-house. And I think that's a, a shift that, again, is not across the board, totally sorted. And there are lots of areas where, where I think it still needs a lot of work. But I do think there is a bit of a shift in that direction. Do you remember almost, it must be 10 years ago, we were talking about sustainable social media. Yes. Of like, you know, teach the client to fish. Don't give them the fish. Yes. Don't give them some tweets. Absolutely. Help them do it themselves. And yeah. actually, that is, in so many ways, the most responsible approach to the kinds of things we do. Where possible, let them do it. 
And I think, you know, I've been talking about or tweeting about ways you should scrutinize agencies you plan to work with. And whenever an agency says, do not pay us to do this, that's a great sign. And it's a pleasure to do well, that. Well, it's true well. consultancy, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than just trying to beef up the retainer. Yeah. Which actually, while we're on the subject, is another interesting yes. shift that yeah, we've seen. Yeah. Pro- uh, retainer to project, I yeah. think, is definitely, I, uh, you know, I've definitely seen that in the world that that I've sort of come from. I, I, I don't know if that's something you're seeing as well, but I think gone are those days yeah. where you get the the massive retainer that just has everything in it and, and you know. So that we've always, you know, for Augur, the way I've built, again, blank sheet of paper, right? So how do you build it to start today? The way of doing that for me was to say there is a three-month, six-month plan kind of thing. That's what we're working to. It's a retainer. There's a monthly fee to it that is based on the work we're going to need to do. But it's not, I mean, it's not based on hours. That's a whole other subject. It's based on units of attention, which are closer to a value uh, versus time we're yeah. charging. Uh, but yeah, don't just pay us monthly a certain amount of money forever and expect things to go well. The retainer concept is a very odd warped one that doesn't even reflect its equivalent in other industries. In stuff like law, the retainer is you pay them that money and then your fees kind of come out of that over through the month, right? The closest I got to, to rethinking this was saying, actually, there should be quite a small amount of money you pay every month to do the basic stuff. We will start paying attention to what's happening in the conversation. And if there are opportunities for you, we will bring them to you. So it could be speaking stuff, award stuff, just thinking about the traditional side of this to start with. Of course, you're listening socially and, and all that kind of thing. So you have you could have something that you is an ongoing fee for the client through that period of time, but way, way lower than what it has been. Then on top of that come in sort of project fees, but it might be three or six months. It might, But it's very clearly a certain strategic goal very clearly, obviously measurable, very clearly a time period, and that's that budget for that project. And there might be other projects and, and that kind of thing. But just to mention another thing on that subject, the amount of times, so especially having worked as head of comms at a couple of VCs now, so I hear from the younger startups about what PR agencies are charging them and what they're doing for them and what they're giving them, the amount of times there is no plan with a clear objective and strategy, yeah, a measurable yeah. plan, just yeah. a document that says this is what we're yeah. going to try and do over yeah. this period of time. And instead, they're like, we're going to do you some PR. And they've got the same spreadsheet that yeah. we've had at agencies we've worked at for over a decade. Yeah. You know, it's just not good enough. One of the things that I think we might see a lot of in the next, I don't know, five years, but it might, it may well take longer than that to, to establish. And I know it's a discussion that's been had for a while is, is the whole sort of value billing kind of perspective. And I yes. think there is a lot of work happening. I know for a fact, there's a lot of work happening in the bigger agencies around this yeah. at the moment. You know, there's a great story and I don't know if it's how true it is, but I heard this story about a, a branding I don't know if it was an agency or a consultant, but when they were Citibank, you know, the American bank yeah. with the little cities. umbrella as the yeah. kind of logo. Yep. Well, this, so the story goes, the, the consultant or the agency were, were in this briefing meeting where they were saying, we, we want this new logo. Yeah. And again, so the story goes, the one of the people in the room basically drew the logo during the meeting on their notepad and the question on that is well if you were if they were charging by the hour then that's what a 
$500 logo mm -hmm. at, you know, decent hourly rates. But famously, the explanation was, no, we're going to charge you however many thousands of dollars this, this costs because it's an hour plus 20 years of experience that allowed me to, to draw that logo. And we all know that's true. And we all know that's true. And yet, so often, we will give away incredible insight yeah. or incredible value for next to no money because we're we we're so obsessed by charging by the hour and charging for hourly billings but also often end up talking to the wrong person you know yeah. talking to the person with the authority to sign off proper money but but it's true yes i mean that is a central conflict at the heart of this what is the value of an idea but i would argue when you look at agencies yes you're hiring them for the concepts but ultimately, you're paying them for the execution of those concepts and yeah. getting the results from those concepts. Yeah. And that doesn't change. You know, yeah. Fundamentally, any kind of business, you should charge as much as you can. If you can argue an ROI, yeah, return on investment for them spending that money. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be charging them anything. If you can't say to yeah. them, here's why you would spend X yeah. amount a month, every month. Yeah. And, and frankly, if you can do that and validate that and you don't have to write a strategy document to do that, I suppose that's okay in a way. I mean, it's unprofessional technically, literally, mm -hmm. but, you know, as a, a CIPR kind of person, a PRCA person, obviously on your side, like that is against the grain of, of where you'd hope this stuff is traveling. But that, even that ROI thing. So this, again, this was in my little Twitter thing today. Agencies run by founders who are doing their own marketing are inclined to have a closer sense of attention on the ROI question for their clients. If you're going to charge them X amount a month, why are they going to make more money than that? Because of the impact of your work. Yeah. Forget coverage. Forget AVE. You know, all that stuff. If you can't even put it in very basic, simple, explain like I'm five terms. If you spend this amount of money for this amount of months doing this kind of work, you should gain more money yeah. <laughs> because of the clients it's going yeah. to bring in. And, and, and I think, unfortunately, the measurement piece, which again, I'm sure we talked about a lot in 2015, yeah. Solved now, though, isn't it? Is it Everyone's is sorted it. As challenging as it ever has been, and yeah. you know, and that's the reality of, of that sort of <laughs> that whole side of it. So, five years older, five years wiser, potentially five years more cynical. At this point, I think we should talk about people doing things, businesses doing things that we admire and respect and want to see more of, for what it's worth. So, starting from my side. I would want to highlight a chap called Rich Lee, who was running Rich Lee & Associates, which became Radioactive PR. He's now world-renowned for his four-day work week, which also I think is fantastic. But in this industry, it is so easy for people to go through the motions and not really confront some of the questions we've talked about already. And then you see people like Rich who really seem to ask the question, why not do it differently? For me, I think some of that comes from maybe the background is, you know, close to professional sports person, it seemed. Yeah, there's an ambition and a fire there, which I think is fantastic. There is a genuine, I would say, commitment to the team that I, I imagine he learned at Ten Yetis, which I always thought was a really nice different way of doing things as well at the same time. Another example I would raise, and in fact, I just joined their spin-off project, which is a, a kind of carbon neutralization service. So you say how many staff you've got, you say how many of them travel either extensively on airplanes or a little bit on airplanes. Nice. Gives you a figure, you pay them that figure monthly. Okay. 
And not only does that money then go to replanting forests to offset the carbon, that money, well, not just the money, but the website demonstrates your forest growing in real time with every tree that you've planted, which, which collects month after month as you continue to pay this money. Every tree has a name. Wow. It tells you where that money has gone to. So charming. And the agency I'm talking about here is Manifest. And the way I've seen Manifest behave, again, I think is from being a relative outsider, not from inside the London ecosystem, asking more interesting questions, approaching things differently. And of course, renowned for, for growing in line with uh, BrewDog with a total, awful word, but the right word, synergy. BrewDog and Manifest grew from, from a, a same shared kind of experience. And so I think what Manifest have done in, in, in communications is think about things differently, act boldly, like bravely, in ways that some people might even like slightly recoil from or think is too much. And that's good. That's how you know a founder is leading this thing. People are making this thing as much for themselves as the people they want to serve. Yeah, and I, de I definitely, I definitely agree with you on those ones. I think, I think it's really interesting. I think I don't know. I, I in a sense, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think it's always it's it's always easy to to look at the new things and and you know I, I'm I'm sort of trying to balance with with more established agencies that are doing some interesting things and i think you know i think agencies like bcw are potentially interesting to watch at the moment you know they're obviously you know they've gone through lots of upheaval in terms of sort of how they're reshaping themselves and i think i think some of the stuff that's coming out of that process i think is quite interesting you know there's a lot of upheaval in the big networks at the beginning of the year you know edelman have had quite a lot of changes i think the ipg agencies that i've just come from you know weber and golan are going through various kind of interesting shifts as well so i think there's lots of interesting stuff happening but i agree with you i think often often it is the smaller more nimble kind of entities that can that can potentially do do those slightly more radical things and i think my old ex weber colleague Stu lambert i think is doing some interesting things at mm. an agency that that he set up last year or helped co-found last year called blurred where again they are you know taking a slightly different look at the agency model and saying actually yes we can potentially have a core team of people that will kind of you know do your account management and do that kind of stuff but actually then when we need to bring in deeper expertise then maybe those aren't people we necessarily need to have on our payroll all the time they are people that you know if we need to write a report on sustainability let's bring in a really deep sustainability expert to you probably couldn't do that payroll either, right? no and they you wouldn't be able good. to make that work financially but but commercially it's possible if you if you slightly change the way that you structure that so so yeah I, I think it's really interesting I think you know it's I have to say you know the five years I spent at Weber there is it, even in a really, really big agency like that, there is a lot of disruption happening. It doesn't always get the headlines because, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of this stuff is kept quite close to their chest. But I think there is lots of interesting things that are happening within big agencies, within the industry. But I think we, are, we do need the smaller disruptive startup entities to, to help push things along as well. And I think the stuff that all of us whether we're in a big multinational network or, you know, a, a, a small kind of startup, there's stuff that we can all learn from looking at those those types of agencies. 
Okay, so the last section of this, we looked at the macro trends, we looked at what's happened within PR industry business. So individual level. So I think, so my career is about 15 years-ish old. It's been a, a long one. I think for, for me, it's really interesting. And this, to be honest, this ties back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier on. You know, I think for me, obviously I've gone through those stages of, you know, getting into an agency for the first time and really spending those first couple of years just trying to figure out what on earth is going on. And I try and remember that now because I think it's, I think so often in agencies, I think we are very guilty of people coming through the door and us really not training them or giving them any kind of sense of what on earth is is going on and, and helping them through that process. So I do try and remember back to those days. And then I guess going through, you know, through through the kind of the various stages, working on different types of clients. But I do feel for me, you know, I've enjoyed getting into that management piece and understanding how businesses work and how agencies work and how they operate. And I think certainly the last, you know, six, seven years of my career, that's been a really interesting thing that I've really enjoyed exploring and developing and learning and 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 I think in a sense being tested because I do I do think you get to a point where you know you feel like you're a good PR practitioner or you're a good social media practitioner and you kind of understand how these things work and you understand how to advise clients and and you know do things successfully and and then I, I think you look for those next challenges and and I think that's a very interesting kind of personal journey that you do tend to go on, you know, I guess relatively quickly through our careers within agencies often. You know, it doesn't always take a crazy a long amount of time. How about you? It depends, doesn't it? I mean, I have had a weird one, haven't I? <laughs> but it has been weird. I think the thing we need to acknowledge is that we got into this industry at a time when really strange things were happening. Yeah. For any industry. Yeah. For every industry. That's very true. And so, if we had come in 10 years earlier, you're not or later, going, or later, well, who knows, may know, maybe no world 10 years from now. <laughs> so, we got into this industry at a strange time, where, I, again, the way I describe it is, I came in not knowing what a press release was, and then relatively quickly came to understand that nobody knew what PR was, or was going to become. And as a result, I would say, so I'm 12 years in, I would say the scope of that opportunity was kind of stunning that we could be saying to the MD, you know, I remember saying to the MD of a global communications, you know, PR agency, we should have a Twitter account. We should be doing this stuff. We should be trying this stuff. Yeah. Could have been wrong, to be fair. But I remember saying all of that stuff just just sort of not knowing any better about where the lines were between yeah. content, media. You're right. Pain. And I think it's it's important like to remember how incredibly liberating social platforms were at that yeah. point. You know, the ability to, <clears throat> you know, be on something like Twitter and actually read tweets that were written by CEOs of global network agencies and even reply to them and have a conversation with them and they reply and they and they 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 actually you know and that was an incredible like that was an incredible opportunity i think in terms of being able to actually 
network and, and meet people and meet people that were also asking those same sorts of questions about what's happening in the industry and where's it all going and, and learn together yeah and setting up a blog and you know working out what blogging is not by looking at other people but just actually by doing it yourself and getting going and and I do think you know some of that still happens but I think it's it was a very different feeling back then because you didn't have 15 years of this already happening. Mm. It was literally this stuff is happening for the first time and you were trying it out for the first time. I also think there is something that I still have meant to write up on my blog for 12 years about the idea that there are certain networks that are relatively high effort and certain networks that are relatively low effort. And actually the lower effort posting dimension has been, has prevailed has been the main thing yeah meaning instagram take a photo of something it looks good and actually most people don't care it's fine whatever whereas blogging and even twitter early on were much higher efforts you really yeah. had to be saying something if you were on there and you're a ceo or cared about it at all you really had to be genuinely listening mm. and doing those things mm. and the whole balance has shifted towards low effort and so if I look at people coming through in the, the, you know, juniors today, there are a lot more people doing the more shallow stuff. I'm sure there are plenty of people going, I am on the route to being an influencer on Instagram or on, you know, Snapchat, TikTok. Next one. I think Yik Yak has died in the meantime. There was Secret at one point, wasn't there? There were various university networks. Anyway. The, but the opportunities for junior people to express themselves on high effort platforms, I think, has gone down. Mm. And, and yeah. I think that's really interesting that if you're a young person getting into this industry or these associated industries today, the channels through which you can express yourself in a, in a really thoughtful kind of long-term way, not yeah. in a, oh, I'm an influencer, so you old agency runners are going to learn a lot from me, superficial way, they feel smaller now. I don't know why don't know why well i I think there was you know there was a potentially i think potentially when we were getting going it was it was easier to stand out because actually just by the fact that you were on twitter and knew how it worked actually gave you an opportunity to stand out that you were interested you were interested and and yeah but i don't know whether i ever strategically sat down and thought hmm, I'm going to get really interested in Twitter and, and work out what this is all about because I think it's going to be career-defining for me. No, I, I actually sat down, was sick of it, and so I followed a thousand people. I wanted to break it. I had a moment of like fury and like, this is stupid. Is this really what this industry is about? And I followed a thousand people because all I'd been seeing before was Stephen Fry. When I had, obviously, a thousand people, it was noisy, but then I just slowly deleted, unfollowed, the ones that weren't good and what was left became increasingly interesting mm. and then you looked at the ones you were seeing more often like yourself like Dan oh, Howe too, too I know I know but and you saw who do they follow and that was a that was a really interesting skill as well and it was an intelligence in it uh, meaning the information intelligence and a an inquisitiveness and a curiosity and I think also a sense of play to it both in me trying to break Twitter and in then cultivating it as a mm. resource afterwards. Yeah. 
And I, I, yeah, I do think those doors are slightly more closed to the people who came after us. Well, but I just think it's now harder to stand out. I think, you know... But then I've, why are so few people doing it? Because if you ask who are the kind of PR bloggers, there is a notable, honourable mention here to Marcel, Marcel Clever, who did a great job as a student, even, blogging and interviewing the people, you know, notable people in the industry. Amazing. But, you know, many other people could be doing that, and they're mm. not. So is it not being told to them they could do that? Do they just not genuinely have the interest? I'm sure there are people who would, but aren't aware of it. Are you not being told by the agencies or the lecturers? Or where is the vacuum? Or are we just past it? And we're not seeing we're not seeing the next generation. It's all on TikTok, Danny. It's all on TikTok. Well, and I think, you know, I think from an agency point of view, you know, in a sense, you're always looking for, you know, when I was at Weber, we... There was an acquisition of a Swedish agency and, and they always said when somebody leaves and you hire somebody new, that's an opportunity to bring a new skill set into the business, which I think is a very simple but quite a revolutionary idea if, if you really see it through to its ultimate um, potential. And and I think that's, that's really interesting. And I think there is a danger that we build businesses that are you know, relatively two-dimensional in terms of the, t- the type of people they have within them. And I think... Well, yeah, we haven't even talked about diversity, right? No, we, so no they and, are I, and diversity, diversity absolutely plays a part in that. Yeah. And I think, but, 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 but alongside diversity, I think it's also about, you know, have we got... I'm trying not to talk about Dominic Cummings, but, you know, have we got people in our businesses Dominic who... Dominic Cummings. 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 Very good. That's you. I'll cut that. You know, have we got people that that actually come in with a totally different viewpoint? And and, and I think that's that's an interesting thing for us to explore. It's not. It's. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to achieve because it's really not. No. But I think it's a very interesting area to kind of look at. So mental health. There yeah. was that report last year that was saying, you know, a shocking number of people in this industry having mental health issues are under enormous pressure. No surprise, I would say, to anyone who's worked in this industry. Don't see it changing. I don't see it changing. Uh, Like a lot of things you don't see changing in PR. Even when you talk to technology vendors trying to sell better uh, solutions into PR, they famously every time say, nobody wants to buy everything. They want to talk about doing things differently, but they don't genuinely want to do things differently. I think that filters through to this as well. What happens with this? How does, you know, it's both as people who run agencies and have been employers and are planning to employ the best people in this business. Why are so many people getting this wrong? Uh, Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting and difficult one. And I think it's very easy to, it's very easy to have a broad brush with some of this stuff, which I think is, infinitely more complex than you know any any person could possibly describe you know i think you know mental health is something that is very different from individual to individual but is the environment itself in this industry but again i think that is a very difficult thing to have a broad brush approach to because i think even at an agency level i you know i've worked in agencies that i think have been very very positive places to work and have been very supportive and you know haven't required people to work long hours and have been very understanding of you know 
issues around mental health and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I've worked in agencies where that's been less mm. true. But I think even within those two examples, I'm sure there are people with, working within those agencies who have found those very, very positive places to work. And I'm sure there are people that have also found mm. very negative places mm. to work. And that can be anything from you, how you react as an individual to you know, the manager you had yeah. or the yeah. team that you worked within. You know, when you're talking about, you know, Weber Shamwake, a global company of three, three and a half mm. thousand people, yeah, right. there are going to be people at Weber Shamwake that are having a great positive experience and there are going to be people that don't. Yeah. And that's not because of Weber Shamwake necessarily. That's just because we're in a people business where mm. we're working with people. And so I think it's a, uh, I think it's very easy for us to say, and I'm not trying to defend the industry. No. It's very easy to say we've got a massive mental health problem. I think we probably have, and the, the stats show that to be true. Equally, I do think there are, I have seen certainly, certainly in my career over the last 15 years, but I think even within the last five years, I have seen quite a few steps that agencies that I've even either worked at or other agencies I've seen within the industry that I've heard about have started to take good steps to try and solve some of this stuff. Yeah. And it's not going to change overnight. It's not going to be an easy thing to solve. But I think the fact that it is on the radar and we're, we're talking about it and, and some agencies and some people and some managers are trying to do something about it, I think, again, maybe being too glass half full, but I think that's a positive step and we should yeah, push I, that. I agree. It's getting better. It's a good thing. Listening to you talk about that, the thing that leaps out to me is that you should find your people. There are good companies in this industry that treat their employees well, yes. that that do good things for them. Yep. And and I and I so I, I agree with you. I think you know if you are in a situation where you feel this is not conducive to my mental health, this is not a good place for me to be. You need to try and find a way to shift to change it, yep. and that you might be able to change it from within, but chances are that's going to be hard and it's, there are it's many... a very easy thing to say leave your job and find another one of course it's not always yeah, course. that easy absolutely right but i do think it's i, I do think it's right and but it, but equally i think on the reverse you know the grass isn't always greener and if you are in a if you're in an environment that you feel is supportive and healthy and you know it, it's is doing you good true then be wary about yeah. shifting that too much because Promises. it's not yeah. the same across the industry. And yeah. there are, you know, before getting a job, try and do as much due diligence as you can. People, speak to people that have worked those places. You know, mm -hmm. Try and find out what it's like and, and what it's actually like to work there. Because I think the, the, I think the variety within the, the industry is, is relatively big. And I suppose, you know, as we move towards rounding out this five-year, maybe we'll do it every five years, <laughs> five-year episode of the podcast, I would say, looking at the 12 years, the last five years, the people in this industry are fantastic, and you don't find them everywhere, and, and they, are, they are really remarkably, I would say, all, all out there, helpful, reach out to them, talk to them ask of them and i think this industry can be incredibly rewarding if you do those things five years later those are the things that really shape your life who you're working with who allows you to do the kind of work you think you should be doing makes the, the mental health thing not as big a deal because 
we all care about. Yeah, I mean, we are in a people, you know, this is a people business. We're in a people industry and, and, and it's it's powered by people. And, you know, yes, technology is having a big impact, but fundamentally that is that is what this is all about. And, and you know, we work in businesses that, that rely on, on people collaborating and thinking and working together. And, and, you know, that's what makes a good agency and it's what good makes good good comms. And a good business. Yeah. Right. The wine is finished. The podcast is finished. We'll see you in five years. Good night. <laughs>